Okay, we have a couple of things this morning that we need to pray about, so we're going to start with that. The first one is that Joe, um, if you don't know Joe, he's an older gentleman that um, is, has been in a wheelchair recently because he broke his kneecap. He fell yesterday and broke his hip, and he's having surgery just any time now this morning. So we're going to pray over him. And then for those of you that know Scott and Karen Dugan at the Wiley Church, um, their little two-year-old Hudson passed away in his sleep yesterday. And so um, we're going to lift them up this morning as well. Um, Yeah, so I'm just going to pray. God, we just want to lift Joe up to you this morning and ask God that his surgery would go well, that it would correct the problems that he's having, that his um, recovery would be unremarkable and uncomplicated, and God, that he would be able to uh, walk again and do the things that he needs to be able to do to take care of himself. I pray that you'll give him comfort and peace as he goes into surgery. And I just thank you for the people that you've put in his life that minister to him. And God, we lift up Scott and Karen. We lift up Troy and Hunter. We lift up all of their family, Lord, and just ask that you would be close to them, that you would bring comfort to them and peace to them. Um, God, I pray that you'll show us um, how to be there for them, how to support them, how to help them. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would cover them. We just love you a lot, and we thank you, God, that uh, you've provided for us in times of tragedy and times of sorrow, that you know what it's like, um, and that you're able to comfort us firsthand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, we're going to continue on with our sermon series on stories and images. And we are in Luke chapter 12 this morning. And so I'm just kind of going to jump right in and I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and I'm going to read through verse 34. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, first of all, I was struck by the fact that there were so many thousands that they were trampling on one another. I'm like, that's just such a funny description. Like, why did he include that? I have no idea. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after all that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, my brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm going to focus in on verse 21 this morning. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. And what I want to do is I want to give you three images of what it means to be rich toward God. And hopefully through these three images, what I want you to do is really think through what does it mean for me to be rich toward God. So the first image, um, this is the story of a man named Hudson Taylor. He lived in the 1800s, and I'm going to read a firsthand account uh, that he wrote. He was He felt um, that the Lord was calling him to be a missionary in China, 
And at the time, China was a very dangerous place to be a Christian. It was not an easy place to go and do mission work. And so what you're going to hear him talking about is he has decided that since when he goes to China, he will be alone and God will be his only provision, that he's going to start living like that now. And so this is, this is where he starts in. By and by, the time drew near when it was thought desirable that I should leave to attend the medical course of the London Hospital. A little while spent there, and then I had every reason to believe that my life work in China would commence. But much as I had rejoiced at the willingness of God to hear and answer prayer and to help his half-trusting, half-timid child— I felt that I could not go to China without having still further developed and tested my power to rest upon his faithfulness, and a marked opportunity for doing so was providentially afforded me. My dear father had offered to bear all the expenses of my stay in London. I knew, however, that owing to recent losses, it would mean a considerable sacrifice for him to undertake this just when it seemed necessary for me to go forward. I had recently become acquainted with the Committee of Chinese Evangelization Society, in connection with which I ultimately left for China, and especially with its secretary, my esteemed and much-loved friend, Mr. George Pierce, then of the Stock Exchange, but now and for many years himself a missionary. Not knowing of my father's proposition, the committee also kindly offered to bear my expenses while in London. When these proposals were first made to me, I was not quite clear as to what I ought to do, and in writing to my father and the secretaries, told them that I would take a few days to pray about the matter before deciding any course of action. I mentioned to my father that I had had this offer from the society and told the secretaries also of his proffered aid. So basically what has happened here is that he has to pay to get this medical training in London. And his father has said he'll cover the expenses, but the society has also offered to cover his expenses, and he's got to choose between the two. While waiting upon God in prayer for guidance, it became clear to my mind that I could without difficulty decline both offers. Decline both offers. The secretaries of the society would not know that I had cast myself wholly on God for supplies, and my father would conclude that I had accepted the other offer. I therefore wrote declining both propositions and felt that without anyone having either care or anxiety on my account, I was simply in the hands of God and that he who knew my heart, if he wished to encourage me to go to China, would bless my effort to depend upon him alone at home. So he's turned down both offers, and not only did he turn those down, what you hear in that is that he gave a lot of thought to his father and to the society and them worrying about him. And so he worked out this uh, plan where he could not take either offer, but not have either of them worried about him. He just went to great lengths to really think through what he was doing. 
I soon found that it was not possible to live quite as economically in London as in Hull, which was where he had been before. To lessen expenses, I shared a room with a cousin four miles from the hospital, providing myself with meals. And after various experiments, I found that the most economical way was to live almost exclusively on brown bread and water. Thus, I was able to make the means that God gave me last as long as possible. Some of my expenses I could not diminish, but my meals were largely within my own control. A large two-penny loaf of brown bread purchased daily on my long walk from the hospital furnished me with supper and breakfast, and on that diet, with a few apples for lunch, I managed to walk eight or nine miles a day besides being a good deal on foot while attending the practice of the hospital and the medical school. (coughs) Sorry. So he's getting a loaf of bread a day, water, sometimes supplementing it with apples, and walking eight to nine miles to get to his training every day. Now, what I want you to think about is he didn't have to do that at this point. He chose to do that so that he could let God be his provider. Very soon after this, possibly the same evening, while sewing to... Wait a second, did I skip something? Oh, no, I didn't. Very soon after this, possibly the same evening, while sewing together some sheets of paper on which to take notes, I accidentally pricked the first finger of my right hand and in a few moments forgot all about it. The next day at the hospital, I continued dissecting as before. It was part of his medical training to dissect. The body was that of a person who had died of fever and was more than usually disagreeable and dangerous, the fever he's talking about. I need scarcely say that those of us who were at work upon it dissected with special care, knowing that the slightest scratch might cost us our lives. And so then he describes starting to feel ill getting really weak, and uh, the doctor that he was working under telling him, you have contracted fever from this body because you must have cut yourself while you were dissecting. And it's at that point that he remembers, I pricked my finger last night. I didn't cut myself. I know I didn't cut myself. So it has to be from pricking my finger that I got this illness. And so he goes to his, um, when he goes to his medical, the medical doctor that is overseeing him, this is what the doctor tells him. Let me see if I can find it real quick because I'm skipping through some of my notes here. He tells him to drive home as fast as he can and arrange his affairs for, quote, you are a dead man. My first thought was one of sorrow that I could not go to China. My first thought was one of sorrow that I could not go to China. But very soon came the feeling, unless I'm greatly mistaken, I have work to do in China, and I'm not going to die. I was glad, however, to take the opportunity of speaking to my medical friend, who was a confirmed skeptic as to all things spiritual. I spoke to him of the joy that the prospect of perhaps soon being with my master gave me, 
telling him at the same time that I did not think I should die, as unless I were much mistaken, I had work to do in China. And if so, however severe the struggle, I must be brought through. That is all very well, his friend answered, but you drive home as fast as you can. You have no time to lose, for you will soon be incapable of winding up your affairs. I smiled at the little, a little at the idea of driving home in a hansom, for by this time my means were too exhausted to allow of such a proceeding, and I set out to walk the distance if possible. So now he's dying, and he's going to try and walk back this four or five miles to where he was staying. And he gets too weak, and he winds up having to take um, some kind of a bus to get there. And as he gets there, the pain was very severe. I fainted away and was for some time unconscious, so long that when I came to myself, I found that I had been carried to bed. When the surgeon came and learned all the particulars, he said, well, if you have been living moderately, you may pull through. I laughed to myself and thought, if moderate living has anything to do with it, I'm in good shape. As little but bread and water has been my diet for a good while past. And so they go on, um, he goes on to go through a lot of recovery. And then this is more towards the end of that recovery. I was much concerned, notwithstanding the agony I suffered, that my dear parents should not be made, oh, this, sorry, back up. This is when he first got sick because he makes this interesting decision. I was much concerned, notwithstanding the agony I suffered, that my dear parents should not be made aware of my state. Thought and prayer had satisfied me that I was not going to die, but there, there was indeed a work for me to do in China. If my dear parents should come up and find me in this condition, I must lose the opportunity of seeing how God was going to work for me now that my money had almost come to an end. So after prayer for guidance, I obtained a promise from my uncle and cousin who were there with him, not to write my parents, but to leave me to communicate with them myself. I felt it was a very distinct answer to prayer when they gave me this promise, and I took care to defer all communication with them myself until the crisis was passed and the worst of the attack over. At home, they knew that I was working hard for an examination and did not wonder at my silence. And so he made the decision not to let his family know that he was so ill because he didn't want them providing anything for him because he wanted God to provide for him. Days and nights of suffering passed slowly, but at length after several weeks, I was sufficiently restored to leave my room. And then I learned that two men who had also had dissection wounds at the same time as myself had both succumbed and died. And so what they tell him after this is that the reason he survived was because he was only eating brown bread and drinking water and having a few apples. That was what allowed him to survive the sickness. His story goes on and on and on with amazing things that God did in his life. And that's an image I want to leave with you, particularly that portion of it, because he, again, did not have to do that at that point. 
he still had people in his life that had money that could have made things much easier for him, but he chose to reject that so that he could learn to depend on God for when he was in China. The second image I want to give you is um, of the Charleston, South Carolina shooting. What? Yeah, he went to China? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry, see, I forget that I know the whole story. Yes, yes. He survives that. He survives many other things, as a matter of fact, and finally does wind up in China, and you need to read his story because it's a pretty amazing uh, story about what he accomplishes um, for the Lord in China. So, yes, sorry. I, you know, I forget. Um, so the second one is the Charleston, South Carolina shooting. And I found a, an interview that actually the Today Show just did about two weeks ago with three of the women that were survivors of that. And I want you to listen um, to this and get the image for how they are rich toward God. Three women whose lives are intertwined by fate and faith and their sheer amazing grace. Police and emergency responders are on the scene at what police confirm is a shooting inside a church in downtown Charleston. That church is known as Mother Emanuel. Felicia Sanders' beloved Aunt Susie was killed that day. So was her 26-year-old son, Tawanza, who had a lifetime of promise ahead of him. He worked two jobs and was a gifted poet. Polly Shepard survived that day as shots rang out, words from the shooter she will never forget. I'm going to leave you to tell the story. Jennifer Pinckney's husband, the Reverend Clementa Pinckney, was also among the nine killed that tragic day three years ago. We were his girls, and we're going to be right here for each other. I caught up with these three incredible women at the Second Presbyterian Church, one block from the crime scene. I feel like I'm around strength. I don't know about you, but that's what it feels like. Do you feel strong? Some days you can conquer the world, yeah. and other days you just want to hurry up, go away. Today, their voices are being heard, preaching about the power and purpose of forgiveness. I don't know if you guys know this, but I don't consider you victims, I consider you teachers, three people who could teach us something. We watched you go through pain, we watched you on your knees, we watched you hug your community, and then we watched something that I feel like is a miracle. We have to forgive. Just two days after losing their loved ones, family members said they forgave the shooter. And I forgive you. But may God have mercy on you. How hard were those words? It wasn't hard at all. I had some other things to say to go with it, but someone behind me started crying. What people don't know is that there was a silence in that room. It, was, it felt so serene in that room. It was a calmness in that room. Um, me and Ms. Foley watched my son take his last breath. But for me to be kneeling right over him and looking at how beautiful he was, and he seemed like he was at peace. Polly describes a light in the room that seemed almost spiritual. And there was a light in that room. It's almost like the lights was off, but they weren't. Yes. It was like we were in the twilight. 
it was two different lights in that room. You had a laser on that gun, that was one of the lights. But the other light was, we were, it was a quiet, it was like you were in a different world. She says she felt God's presence. I have no doubt that he was in that room with us. With all that loss, you still know he was in the room with you? I know God was in that room, yeah. I know that we're all people, and you feel the same pain, and you feel the same hope. So, Polly, for you, the idea, I would think that you'd be livid, angry, want revenge, want to just take the guy by the throat, you know? I was that way at first. But then I thought about Felicia. Felicia had lost her son. And I said, if she could forgive, why are you so hard-hearted you can't forgive? So from that day on, I had a release. Because forgiveness is like, you think you're letting somebody else off the hook, but you're actually letting yourself off the hook. Because if you keep it, there's no healing with hatred. You have to love each other. That's our second commandment. You have to love each other. Yes. Jennifer, forgiveness doesn't come easy. No, it doesn't. When someone robs you of your husband, which is just what that man did, where are you on your journey? You know, you always want to forgive, and that's what we're taught. You know, sometimes I feel like I teeter-totter, but then I know that it's the right thing to do is to forgive. You know, it's, it's what we've taught our girls. I don't teach them to hate. Have you forgiven him? To a certain extent, yes. But yes. not all the way. Sometimes when I look at my girls and what they've, you know, they won't have the father-daughter uh -huh. dance. They won't have daddy to walk them down the aisle. I think about them and their future and, and what they're missing out. Felicia Sanders says it hasn't been easy for her granddaughter, whom she saved by laying over her body during the attack. I grieve for my granddaughter. Mm -hmm. I really grieve for her. No 11-year-old child should be in combat. Mm -hmm. So I have to, I have to be strong for her. Yes, you do. Yeah. And I understand that wholeheartedly because I have to. Yes. You got to be strong, you know. You Don't you get tired sometimes of always being strong? <laughs> Do you ever get tired? All, all the time. Yes. Yeah. All the time. And it tells you in Matthew 6, mm -hmm. right after our Father's Prayer, you have to forgive others for you to be forgiven. I would say from us forgiving, we can go on, we can wear a smile, we can smile. I think there are so many sermons that could be preached uh, from what those women said. I want to read you. So the little video clip that they just showed really shortly of one of them saying, I forgive you, was the day after the shooting took place, when he was arraigned. When he was sentenced, I want to read you uh, what was said. Clutching the blood-stained Bible she had with her when Dylan Ruth executed nine family and friends around her, Felicia Sanders told the self-avowed white supremacist in court that she forgives him for his actions. They have scarred her life but haven't shaken her faith. Addressing Ruth the day after a jury sentenced him to death, Sanders said the mass shooting that killed nine black worshipers in June 2015 has left her unable to hear a balloon pop or an acorn fall without being startled. 
She can no longer shut her eyes when she prays. But she will carry on, she told him, and continue to follow the words of God, still clear in the battered Bible she cherishes. I brought my Bible to the courtroom. Shot up, she said. It reminds me of the blood Jesus shed for me and for you, Dylan Roof. That is the second image of being rich toward God. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about that one because I think it speaks for itself and that you will get way more out of thinking about that than you will me telling you anything about that. The third image I want to share with you is of a young family with four young kids. Many years ago at the Northeast Church in Garland, we took a special contribution for the specific purpose of adding more staff. We needed more staff members to plant more churches and for focus staff to expand to be on more campuses. I don't remember the exact amount that we asked for, but it was substantial for the congregation that we had. We really encouraged and challenged our members to be sacrificial in their giving. It was essential to growing our churches and to growing our campuses, and it was a pivotal put your money where your mouth is for our church family. We had a young family, like I said, with four young children. They were a one-income family, and it was not like they were a one-income big corporate salary family. They were a one-income small salary family, and they lived very frugally and very lean, and they desperately needed a new family vehicle. And so they had been uh, saving up to buy a minivan at least for a year, I want to say a couple of years, they had been saving. And um, they had gotten quite a good nest egg to go towards that. And after praying about it, they made the decision to give their entire van savings to the special contribution. It was after that that we planted Wiley Church, Denton North Church, Arlington Church, UNT focus, TWU focus, NCT focus, and on and on. If you have been blessed by any of those communities, it's because of this young family and many like them that sacrificed things for themselves to be rich toward God and toward his vision and toward his kingdom. All three of these images are true stories, and I did that for a reason. Um, I think it's really easy for us to imagine what it means to be sacrificial, for us to imagine what it means to be rich toward God, but when we hear about stories that really happened, that were real people, I think it's much easier for us to relate to. So again, I'm going to read from Luke 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I want you to think through those images of the people that I've told you about as we read through this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. What does it mean for you to be rich toward God. And before I read this last section of scripture, Troy, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come up. I found it interesting how this last section of scripture tells us how being rich toward God is the antidote for worry in our lives. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Troy wrote a poem that I think um, speaks to this idea of worry, and I asked him if he would share that this morning. At night, I lie awake. The silence is my only companion. My head is full of thoughts, worry, anxiety. How can I rest? My mind is like an ocean, and I am in the middle of a storm. I toss and I turn with wave after wave after wave of thoughts and dreams as they come crashing down. There is no calming it. There is no controlling it. There is no hope but to wait out this storm like I do every other night, longing for rest. I look out, and all I see is a dense fog. Nothing is clear, and nothing is sure. I'm afraid of what is coming next, and I panic. I want to leave this ocean, but I'm terrified of the uncertainty. I reach out, hoping to find something or someone who can save me. But then I hear a voice. Well, not quite a voice, but somehow it is speaking to me. It is warm, it is beautiful, it is good. This voice sounds so familiar, so sure, so welcoming. Amidst this ocean of worry, it tells me one thing over and over and over. Peace, be still. Thanks for sharing that, Troy. So I've given you a lot to think about this morning. Um, I haven't given you a lot of answers, and that is by design. I want you to think through it. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. If you have questions, I want you to ask. Come and talk to me, talk to other people in our community, um, but think your way through this and let the Holy Spirit guide you to what it is he wants you to see about what it means to be rich toward God and how that relates to freeing us from worry and giving us that peace uh, that Troy talked about, giving us Jesus. And how does being rich toward God relate to receiving that peace and being free from worry? Um, as you're thinking about that, we're going to take communion together this morning and I would encourage you to share your thoughts with other people, um, to share your encouragements with other people while we do that. Um, if anything, I think that you should take uh, a lot of encouragement out of the things that we talked about this morning, out of the images that you've seen. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to celebrate Jesus, who brings great peace, who brings great comfort. Um, who brings great forgiveness to us so that we can then pass those same things along to other people. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just pray that you'll show us what it means to be rich toward God. Um, we know that uh, greed is wrong, but as we focus and try and be what it is you want us to be, what is it that being rich toward God looks like? I pray that you will speak to us through the images and through your word this morning, Lord. And I pray that you'll convict us where we need conviction. I pray that you'll encourage us where we need encouragement. I thank you that uh, 
Jesus is the antidote to worry, and I pray that we'll think about how being rich toward God is connected to that. More than anything, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his forgiveness. We thank you for his provision. We thank you that um, he understands us and can relate to us and can plead on our behalf. And we just thank you for loving us so well. And we love you in return, not as well as you love us, God, but with the best that we have. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.